All right, good morning. Everybody doing all right? Loving this weather. Cooler weather and a little bit of rain makes, makes for a good day. Well, I uh, want to welcome everybody here, everybody online. Um, again, we've got people in Brock. We've got a group of guys meeting in, um, let's see, Granbury. We've got our Fort Worth group that meets, and then we've also got a South Campus group that meets watching online. So I uh, want to welcome them with us this morning. If you got your Bibles, open them up, and we're going to start in chapter 16. And we're in the, getting into the meat of what I believe is the meat of the book, which is the uh, history of the patriarchs. And we uh, got introduced to this guy named Abram last week, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time with Abram over the next few weeks as we dig deeper and deeper into his life. And, and most of us in the room are familiar with Abram. We, we know who this guy is. We've heard sermons about him. We, we've uh, read about him. Um, he's in the great hall of faith, chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. And so we're pretty familiar with him. Uh, and we, we may be familiar with many of these stories, but the one thing that I hope jumps out at all of us today is um, Abram had a patience problem. Um, and and he, he really didn't like waiting. I can relate to that. I don't like to wait. I, I have very little patience. And so the idea of waiting on God, which is the title of our topic this morning, was really hard for Abram to, to wait on God. And I don't think I've ever noticed or thought about how long he did wait, how long this guy was made to wait by God. We know about all the promises, and we're going to look at them in just a second, but God makes all these incredible promises to him, and then he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits. And Nothing worse than knowing something is promised and you have to wait. It's like Christmas. You know, as a kid, Christmas was always this thing out there that I was always waiting for, couldn't wait for, but it never seemed to arrive. And it, it just drove me crazy. And I, in a way, that's the feeling I have with Abram as he waits on the promises of God. God makes all these promises, and they're incredible promises, right? It's the whole reason he left Ur to move to Canaan based on the promises of God. This is what I'm going to do for you. These are the things I'm going to give you. And chapter 15, which we looked at last week, contains all those promises. And I just want to review them so we can get into our heads why it's so hard to wait. If you knew these things were coming, you'd want them to come like right away, but they didn't. He says, your reward will be very great. Now, any way you skin that cat, that's reward, great reward, all right, when? The sooner the better, right? Well, it's going to take a while. He says, your very own son shall be your heir. What's the problem? His wife's barren. She can't have a son. So he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting. He says, look toward heaven and number the stars, so shall your offspring be. What's the problem? I don't even have a son yet. And so he's having to wait for this to get fulfilled. Well, it gets even worse or better, depending on how you look at it. Your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs. I'm going to give you this land. That was part of the, the process and the promises is I'm going to give you this land. And the land is so important because he's going to need that land to house all his offspring. But again, he didn't have any land yet. He didn't have any offspring yet. And he says, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
This was the bad part of the promises, right? I'm going to give you all these offspring, but they're going to be afflicted for 400 years, but they'll come out with great possessions. Even though they're going to be afflicted, they're going to go into enslavement for 400 years. They're going to come out incredibly wealthy. And again, the people hearing this, standing on the banks of the River Jordan, have lived through that. They're the byproduct of the fulfillment of that promise. But for Abram, none of this stuff has happened yet. They're all just promises. They're words. Granted, they're words from God, Yahweh, but he has no track record that God keeps promises. Think about that. He just literally met him in Ur. He's never worshipped him before. Just out of the blue, this God, Yahweh, speaks to him, makes all these promises, gets him into the land. But as of right now, he's not fulfilled any of the promises that he's made. He says, they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Four generations, four centuries, they'll come out and they'll come back here. This is what he's promising him. It hadn't happened yet. And he says, once again, to your offspring, I will give this land. We have to, in a way, cut Abram a little bit of slack because he's still waiting. He's still waiting for all of this to happen. And there's problems, problems with the promise. And, and sometimes we overlook these. Uh, when I was younger, I, I was a pretty um, stern critic of the Israelites. I didn't know a whole lot about the Bible other than what I was told by my dad when he preached or by my Sunday school teachers when they taught me in Sunday school. But I knew enough about the Israelites to know that these people are stupid. Why? Because God does all this great stuff for them and they don't ever seem to connect the dots. And as a kid, I'd go, man, if God had done all that for me, I'd have been all over it. I, I would have gotten it. I would have been smart enough to real. And then I got older. And I realized, really, the Israelites are just a picture of me. They're a picture of you. We do the same thing. But there are some problems. Look at this. There's a 400-year delay built into the promise. That's a long time. He's pretty much told them, your descendants will never own this land and live in this land for 400 years. So even when I bless you and give you all these offspring... It'll be 400 years before they ever occupy this land. That's a long way. Guess who's not going to be around when that happens? Abram. What kind of promise is that? Uh, it's not one I want. You know, I want it now. I, I want to be blessed now. He says, they will be afflicted for 400 years, and then they'll come out. How will they come out? God will deliver them. Who are the people standing on the bank of the Jordan River getting ready to go into the land of promise? Those very same people the descendants of Abram. The second problem is a little bit more personal, and it's that he's childless. He, he has no kids and really no prospect. We know from chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. This woman has no ability to bear children. She is barren. She can't. And as the story goes on, it's going to get worse because she's going to get older. And the older she gets, the less likely it is that she can have children. So built-in 400-year delay, and he's got a barren wife. So look at what it says. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. 
we get introduced to this individual named Hagar. And Hagar, as it says, is an Egyptian. That means she's a descendant of Ham. You remember Ham? Ham was the son of Noah who shamed his father. He walks into his tent. Noah had gotten drunk on wine that he had harvested and that he had made, and he uncovered himself. His son Ham walks in, sees him naked, and then he goes out and he laughs about it, and he tells it to his brothers and shames his father. And as a result of that, Noah curses Canaan, the son of Ham. This this woman, Hagar, who we get introduced to, is a descendant of Ham. She comes from that line. So she's going to start to factor into this whole equation of what's going to happen. So Sarah said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now you already see what's going on here, right? Sarah knows she's barren. Sarah knows she can't bear children. Sarah, I think, is embarrassed by the fact that she can't do what women were supposed to do in that day and age. One of their primary responsibilities was to bear children, and particularly male children, for their husbands, because that's how the line continued. And so she has basically failed at that job, and so she's come up with an idea. And I love this. It says, so Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, and Sarah's wife took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband. And then it says, and he went into her. He went into Hagar. Now, you don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to know Hebrew to understand what that means, right? He didn't just go visit her. He went into her. He had sex with her. He impregnated her. He, and what blows me away about this story is at no point does he go, Honey, this is a really bad idea. He, he doesn't argue with you. He doesn't debate with her. He's like, I'm all over this. Why didn't you come up with this idea sooner? He, he just basically says, great idea. It's not unlike what Adam did in the garden when Eve handed him the fruit and said, hey, have some of this. And he goes, you bet. He knew better, but he didn't argue with you. He didn't say, no, we can't do that. We're forbidden to do that. So Two guys, Adam and now his descendant, Abram, basically give in, and he goes into Hagar, and he impregnates her. But what's key is, it's been 10 years. And sometimes we don't notice that when we read this passage, that from the moment that God made those promises to him, he's waited 10 years. 10 years is a long time. He's waited 10 years and nothing has happened. What's the most important nothing that has happened? His wife has had no baby. He's waited and he's waited and he's waited. And built into this, kind of baked into the cake, guys, is that they were trying regularly. regularly. Now, the scripture doesn't say that, but in order for her to have a child, they had to have sex. So I'm guaranteeing that they were trying regularly and she never delivered excuse the pun. She couldn't do it. Her body wouldn't allow her to do it. So he's waited 10 years and you can almost sense the frustration that, dadgummit, how are the rest of the promises ever going to happen if she doesn't have a baby? If, if she doesn't follow through with her responsibility, there's some frustration taking place between this couple. 
decades of delays and disappointment. And, and it had to be that every month he, he would say, honey, how's it going with you? Nothing. Now, I have a daughter. She and her husband have five kids, and they're all adopted because they, they are unable to have children. And I know firsthand how frustrating that has been for my daughter. Of my four daughters, she's the one that wanted kids the most, and she wanted a big family. And she's watched her other sisters have children, and she can't. And, and so they've adopted, and, and I bless them for that. But that burning in her heart has never gone away to have a child of her own, to be able to bear a child and birth a child. And so all these delays, and it's interesting that Sarah hasn't been mentioned in these chapters since Egypt. Remember what happened in Egypt? He gets to the land, there's a famine, and he comes up with that great plan to go to Egypt. Nothing wrong with that, but when he gets there, he tells her to lie, tell him, you're my sister. Pharaoh takes her, puts puts her in his harem, and God has to intervene. She has not been mentioned since that event. They're back in the land, 10 years have passed, and suddenly she comes back into play. Why? Because she can't do what needs to be done so that the rest of the promises can be fulfilled. That's a lot of burden on this woman. 10 years, and here her name resurfaces. As Abram's wife, she's vital, right? If all of these promises are going to happen, she has to get pregnant and have a child, and not just a child, a male child, so that he can become the inheritor of all those promises. Because remember, they're going to his offspring. They don't really go to Abram. He never will own any land. He'll never possess a home, a city. They're going to go to his offspring. God has made that perfectly clear. But again, she's failed to deliver. She's not been able for 10 years to provide him with the heir he needs. And so he's frustrated. I think she's frustrated. And there's this palpable sense of guilt on her part, I see in this passage. Sarah felt personally responsible for the predicament in which her husband found himself. As his wife, she had quite literally failed to deliver. She had given him no son, and in a sense, she was burdened by her inability to produce an heir and felt compelled to come up with an alternative plan. Now, we've already seen Abram come up with an alternative plan in terms of what do you do when you face a famine? What do you do when there's not enough grazing land? You know, you give away the land to your nephew. We've seen him kind of play God. Now we're going to see her fall into the same trap. If I can't get pregnant, if I can't deliver an heir for my husband, then I'm going to come up with an alternative plan. I'm going to come up with a way to make this happen. And it's all based on her inability. And usually, guys, that's what drives my playing God is some form of inability, some form of lack. You know, if I could just do this, it will fix this problem. I face something in my life that, that I feel like I, I don't want, I, I want to correct, and so I step in and I try to fix it myself. And that's exactly what she's going to do. But here's what we have to realize, and we talked about this last week, all throughout these chapters is the sovereignty of God. He is always working behind the scenes. So is he surprised that she's infertile? Not in the least. At no point in the story is he ever shocked by the fact that she can't have a baby. He knew it 
from the very beginning. All the way back in chapter 11, verse 30, Sarah was unable to become pregnant and had no children. This is where we first get introduced to this couple. God knew when he called Abram in Ur that his wife was barren. It was part of the plan. That's what makes the promises so incredible is that I'm going to do something significant with somebody with a serious deficiency. One of the serious deficiencies is, yes, she can't get pregnant. The other serious deficiency, I believe, is his lack of faith. It doesn't say he was a man of faith then. It will call him a man of faith later. So there's some deficiencies going on, and God knew all about them. God knew Abram. God knew her. God knew her condition. And God had that as part of the plan. And it's all a test of their faith. See, this whole story is all about the test of faith. And, and the truth is, none of us in the room like to have our faith tested. Because typically when our faith gets tested, it doesn't show up well. We don't score well oftentimes because we don't trust, we don't believe. And so what's happened is we've not seen her mentioned. And now 10 years later, she shows up and the delay to her is a setback, but it's not to God. The, the waiting for God was nothing. You know, time is nothing to God. Ten years is nothing to God. But to her, it's like eternity. Every month to realize I'm not pregnant and we're going to have to go through this process again. And she's, by this time, I'm sure thinking, this is never going to happen. I will never have a child. And so I got to do something about this. And she fails to realize that maybe this is part of the plan. Maybe this is God teaching me to rest in him. And again, I don't like it any more than you do. I don't like to wait on God. I don't like to rest in God because I want to make things happen. I want it to happen now. But sometimes we have to learn that those delays that God brings in, into our life are perfect and perfectly planned. And so you're going to see his plan up against her plan. And I don't want you to miss this because guys, every day, that's what we do. We see God's plan up against our plan. And it's a, it's a battle. It's a battle to decide, am I going to trust him or, I'm gonna, or am I going to step in and be God, do what I think is best and kind of tell, either tell God what I think is best. How do we do that through our prayer lives? You know, God, if you would just answer this prayer, everything would be better. And then he doesn't answer the prayer and we get frustrated and go, what's wrong with you? Did you not hear me? Am I not clear? Do I need to pray harder, longer? If you would just do what I tell you to do, everything would be better. And he goes, no, I want you to wait on me. That's not what I want. And therefore, I'm not giving it because I have something else in store. See, she says this, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Now, think about that. You could read this a number of ways, and I don't know her heart, so I don't know exactly what she meant when she said this, but her actions seem to reveal something. She basically says, God is the one behind this. Now, I think part of that is she realizes that if this God, Yahweh, is who he says he is, then he's divine, and he has power that I don't have, and he's in control. So I think there's part of this that's somewhat of a confession, an admission that at the end of the day, whatever this deity is, who she doesn't know any more than her husband does at this point, he's got to be in charge of all things. So she sees her infertility as up to God. Now, 
one of the things about she and her husband when they were back in Ur is that they were polytheistic. They worshiped not just Nana, the moon god, but all kinds of gods. And I'm sure they had a fertility god, right? And a fertility god was there to pray to so that you will be fertile, so that your flocks will be fertile. And so she knows just even with her idolatry that there are gods who are in charge of what? Fertility. And maybe this Yahweh is in charge of fertility. And so he's kept me from being fertile. He's the one behind it. How does she know that? Because she's tried, she's failed, she's tried, she's failed for how long? 10 years. And really you can go back before the 10 years and realize that they were trying to get pregnant back in Ur. They were trying to get pregnant in Haran. Now they're in Canaan and they're still trying to get pregnant. And it's even more pressure on her because she knows that everything about her getting pregnant is tied to all the promises being fulfilled. It's not going to be Lot. God's made that perfectly clear. It, it ain't Lot. He's your nephew. He's not your offspring. It, it's, and we're going to see, it's not going to be Eleazar, the servant. It's going to be your offspring. So she puts all her hope in a plan. Whose plan? God's plan? No, because nowhere in the text does God tell her to do this. God doesn't come to her. He doesn't send an angel to her to her. Nowhere does God say, hey, here's what you need to do. You're never going to get pregnant, so take your maidservant, Hagar, and give her to your husband. It's her idea. It's her plan. And it sounds like a good plan. And what do we know happens? He went into her. He doesn't argue. He doesn't do anything. He goes into her, and she conceives. And I love the succinctness of this. How long have they been trying? Ten-plus years. He goes into her, and the inference is, one time, and this, this girl's fertile. She's immediately pregnant. She immediately conceives. She, she has a child in her womb. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. You, you can see that, that in this story, now there's conflict, not only between Abram and Sarah, there's going to be conflict between Sarah and Hagar. The idea that she came up with, the plan she developed is going to blow up in her face because it works. Think about that. It worked. I remember years ago when I was working for an agency in Dallas, and I was much younger, hadn't been in the industry that long, and everybody I ever worked for I thought was a fool. Every supervisor I had was an idiot. And so I came up with this great plan. You need to start your own agency. You're talented. You're gifted. You could do this. You're surely smarter than these idiots. And so I began to come up with a plan to start my own agency. And, and being a good Christian, I sought counsel. So I went to Ted Kitchens, who was a good friend and my pastor, and I, I, I laid it out for him. And I was very careful how I laid it out because I painted a very rosy picture of my future. And Ted goes, well, it sounds like you ought to give it a shot. And then I met with my dad, and I did the same thing. And my dad said, well, if you've prayed about it and you, and you feel like that's what the Lord's leading you to do, then, then do it. Then I met with my wife's dad. So I was getting all this counsel, but I stacked the deck in my favor. So they all said, sounds like you should try it. And I did. And for the first five years, it went great. And then the real estate economy in Texas cratered, and every one of my accounts was real estate related, and I suddenly was on the verge of bankruptcy. Five years of feast and then famine. 
And I literally, I had to fire all my employees and it was just me. And we barely could pay the bills. And my plan worked for five years. But the lesson I learned from all of that was how arrogant, how prideful, how self-sufficient I was. And God taught me a very painful but necessary lesson. And I feel like that's what's going to happen here is that she's successful, but it doesn't go quite the way she expected because when this young lady gets pregnant, when he goes into her and she conceives, she gets prideful. She who? Hagar. She thinks, I did something you can't do. Remember, she's the slave woman to Sarah. And she's like, I did something you've been trying to do for years, and I'm going to bear the child that will be the heir to all the promises. And she flaunts it in Sarah's face, and that makes Sarah very angry. That just rubs salt in the wound that she has not been able to have a baby. This girl gets pregnant first time out, and she becomes jealous. She becomes angry about what's happened. Her plan was pregnant with problems. I'm sorry for the puns, but they're built into the cake here. Everything about this plan was wrong from the get-go. Now, again, we can sit there and go, well, God's sovereign, right? And God is. God does use our plans, our ill-conceived, poorly implemented plans, because he's always in control. He will use our plans, and her plan worked like a charm. He goes in, she gets pregnant, she's going to have a baby, but it turns into a curse, a curse for everybody involved, a curse for Abram, as we'll see, a curse for Sarah, as we've already seen, and it's going to become a curse for Hagar very quickly. I love this Proverbs. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man or a woman, but its end is the way of death. It sounds good. It looks good on paper. You can get all the counsel you want, and you can convince everybody to agree with you that this is a great idea. She got Abram to agree. She got Hagar to agree, and Hagar didn't have much choice because she's a slave. She had to do it, and and yet it leads to death. How? She produces a baby, Hagar, but there's no joy. Abraham, Abraham has no joy. Sarah definitely has no joy. She's got no joy in the fact that this woman has a baby in her womb. And Hagar is going to very quickly lose joy over it because she starts to get abused by Sarah. Sarah abuses her. Sarah treats her like garbage, and she blames Adam or, or Abram for the whole thing. She says, this is your fault. And, and I can just imagine him standing there like all of us and going, I just did what you told me to do, honey. Well, that's the whole point. You shouldn't have done it. You got her pregnant, but you told me to. But she, she's casting blame. She's frustrated. And then she's going to doom his offspring to death. Well, how? Because she abuses this woman so much. Remember, she's just pregnant. She hadn't had the baby yet. She, she abuses her to the point where she runs away. She finally runs away. Hagar can't take it anymore. We don't know what Sarah was doing to her, but I know she made her life miserable. She was a slave already, and she's going to bring her down a notch, and she probably gave her menial tasks to do. She probably treated her worse than she ever treated her. Why? Because she's carrying this baby in her womb. Everything's going to literal hell in a handbasket. So she runs away. Hagar escapes, and we don't know exactly how far she went. She went to a place called Shur, and... and 
we're not sure where that is, but if the location they think it is is where it is, it's a long trek, and it's on the way to Egypt. Where's she going? She's going home. She's trying to get all the way to Egypt to return to her family. It says, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring of the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. Now, there's nothing in the text that tells us she was a worshiper of Yahweh. She probably was still a pagan worshiper, but she knew about this God. She was probably a little surprised to hear from him. But the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. What, what an incredible directive. Go back to the misery. Go back to where you were getting abused, where you're not loved, where you're not respected. What's really fascinating in this passage is Sarah and Abram both never use her name. Your maidservant, your maidservant. It's just, she's a piece of property is all she is. And he's saying, God's saying, go back, submit to her, come under her, submit yourself to her. Everything about that sounds wrong, right? And yet that's God's plan. That's God's will. This is what I'm asking you to do. Go back. And then he tells her, you're going to be a blessing to the nations. What's amazing about that is she's an Egyptian. She was probably acquired when Abram made that trip to Egypt during the famine, and he was given all these riches by Pharaoh to pay him off for what he had done, and she was probably part of the the payoff. But he's got this Egyptian woman, and she's carrying the seed of Abram. See, it was Sarah's plan. Hagar gets pregnant, and yet God had told Abram, I'm going to bless the nations through you. You're going to be a blessing to the nations. And now God has put a seed, the seed of Abram, into this woman, this Egyptian, and she's going to bear a child, and he blesses her. This blows me away. Every time I read it, I think, why, God? Why are you doing this? Why are you blessing this woman? He says to her, I will give you more descendants than you can count. Who else did he tell that to? Abram. He's telling this Egyptian woman who's going to have a, let's face it, a half-breed child that you're going to have more descendants than you can count. This child will have more, more descendants than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. It's the same thing he promised to Abram. He says, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. He blesses her and says, you're going to have this child. This child will have many, many descendants, but he's going to have some issues. He's going to have some problems. He's going to have constant conflict. The, the description there of the wild donkey is he, he's going to be a, a, a Bedouin, a wanderer. Uh, he's going to never really settle anywhere in particular. And we know historically that from th- this woman comes the Arab races, and, and we know that there's always been conflict between who? The Arabs and the Israelis. It's still going on today. So she's blessed, and she's going to have all these children, and he will be the seed of Abraham. As a matter of fact, 
the, the, uh, in Islam, they're, they have many, many uh, lines where they try to show that Muhammad comes from Ishmael. That's why they believe Ishmael to be the heir, not Isaac. And, and so there's all kinds of conflict here, and that's part of the promise is that she will have many descendants, and they will occupy land, but it won't be the land of Canaan. And there'll be conflict always between the people of Israel and the people that descend from Ishmael. Hagar's son would be blessed, but his descendants are cursed. See, anytime we try to do things our way, we may have success, but there will always be some form of curse or negativity that comes from it. There will be repercussions. They're going to be wanderers. They will never truly settle down. There will always be conflict. Even within the Arab nations, there's conflict. There's different strands of Islam. They can't seem to get together. One of the things that made Muhammad unique was that he gathered together all those disparate tribes and he united them. No one had ever done that before because of this. They're going to face constant conflict, and part of that conflict will always be with the Israelis, the descendants of Isaac. See, when we do things our way, we may see success, but we're also going to see the negative ramifications. And yet, God is in control. God is always in control. God is always working His plan, even though our plans tend to produce both blessings and curses. The curses are our fault. We bring that about by taking matters into our own hands. But God still blesses. Think about this. God is blessing Abram through this Egyptian woman. And he will have many descendants. He will have those descendants, but he will also have his own descendants. But you don't do God's will your way. That's not the way it works. That's not the way it should work. So chapter 17 opens up, and it's really interesting because more delay. So we've had this situation happen with Hagar and Ishmael. She's going to have the baby. She goes back. And then it says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God, walk before me and be blameless. So some time has passed. And he gets this appearance, this message from God Almighty. God is going to, once again, speak to him and tell him something. And he calls him to walk before me and be blameless. This passage used to scare the bejeebers out of me because I'm like, that's incredible. Not only is he 99 years old, but he's getting this statement from God that you must walk before me and be blameless. Now, when you hear the word blameless, what comes to mind? Perfect, sinless, um, no, no flaws. You, you know, walk before me and live sinlessly. And I'm thinking, I can't do it at 67. I, I know I'm not going to be doing it at 99. How is this guy supposed to pull this off? What is God asking of him? Not just asking, but demanding of him, the walk of faith. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. And this is important. So when she goes back, she has the baby, he's 86. That's what chapter 16 tells us. 13 years have passed by the time we get to verse 1 of chapter 17. Ishmael is therefore how old? Do the math. I know it's early. He's 13. Why is that significant? 
In most of those Middle Eastern cultures, 13 was adulthood, the entrance into adulthood when you become a man. So what's going on in Abram's mind? 13 years have passed. Who's still barren and childless? Sarah. So what's he thinking? This is my heir. And now he's reaching adulthood. It's time to give him the inheritance. It's time to make it official. See, God knows what's going on in this guy's brain. That's why he shows up at this moment, 13 years later, and he says, hey, I got a message for you. And it's not going to fit your plan. I know what you're thinking. Don't do it. Don't try to make this guy your heir. And Abram is definitely leaning that direction. That's, that's the whole purpose, really, of chapter 17. Abram said to him, or he says to Abram, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Now, again, what's he telling him? Walk before me. That phrase is, is pretty fascinating in, in the, New Te- or the Old Testament because of what it really means. He's already been in the land 23 years now. The inference is, you haven't been walking before me and you haven't been blameless because he's telling it to him now. A lot of stuff has happened in 23 years, right? The famine, went to Egypt, came back, um, had the, the row with his nephew and he gives him land that he didn't really have the right to give. He has the battle between the kings of the east. He wins the battle, but all kinds of stuff has happened. And so now God issues this command, why now? Why is God saying, walk before me and be blameless now? Because he's settled for less. In his brain, he's already decided, this is my lot in life. It will be Ishmael. Ishmael will be the key to the promise. And God's about to tell him, no. He's never going to be your heir. Lot wasn't your heir Eleazar will not be your heir. Ishmael is not your heir. See, in a, in a real way, Lot has given up on his wife. He, he, he still knows, 23 years in the land, she's still not pregnant, and he's, he's basically given up. You know, he, they may have stopped trying at this point. You know, what's the use? Why are we doing this? We don't know what's going on. All we know is that God has not given up. And here's what you need to hear, and I need to hear, is that when you give up, guess who hasn't? God. When, when your faith has run out, he's still faithful. When you think he's not strong enough, he is. When you think he's not watching, he is. And that's what he's going to try to tell him. I haven't given up. I know the problem. I know, Sarah, be patient. Wait. At 13 years of age, Ishmael was on the cusp of becoming a man. And in his omniscience, God knew exactly what Abram is thinking. This 99-year-old father of a teenager had assumed that Ishmael would be his heir. But he was about to discover just how wrong he was and just how God great is, great God is. See, he needed to know that. He needed to know that you've got to trust me. I can handle this. I've not given up. I've not lost hope. I've not lost power. So he says, walk before me. It's a call to a life of integrity. I did a study on this a number of years ago, and it was really enlightening because, again, as I said, this passage has already always just frustrated me. What does it mean? What does it mean to walk before God? The word in Hebrew is halak, and it literally means to conduct yourself, to, yes, go from point A to point B, physically walk, but 
it, it's more metaphorical in the sense of live your life, conduct your life, spend your days in such a way. So it's not just literal walking, it's how do you live your life? He's saying, live your life before me. What does that mean? Padim. It means in front of my face. It's the idea of living as if God is watching you. Now think about that. Think about God watching everything that you do. The realization that God is omnipotent, omniscient. He can see everything. He, he looks down and he sees everything you do. He knows the thoughts in your brain before they've hit your brain. He knew what Abram was thinking before Abram had thought of it. That's what the scriptures teach us. So this God says, live your life, conduct your life from zero to 99, however old you are, live it as if I'm watching you. Because guess what? I am. I got my eye on you. Don't try to hide anything from me and be blameless. What does that mean to be blameless? The word is fascinating because it really has the idea of wholeness, completeness. We, we tend to focus on purity, uh, perfection. And while it can mean that, it, it, in most cases, it has to do with wholeness. It, it's like health, good health, whole health. It, it, it refers to body, mind, and spirit. It's, it's not perfection. It's completeness. So again, it, what does he mean? To live your life in front of my face, wholly, completely, Every aspect of you, every part of your being, again, wholeness and holiness. Think about how much you try to hide from God or that you don't think God sees. Um, You know, one of the crazy things about prayer is that prayer is a place where we come to God and we confess sin. But think how many times you refuse to confess sin because you don't want God to know. Think how stupid that is as if he doesn't know. Prayer is not informing God, hey, I just watched something on TV I shouldn't have watched, or I just lusted, or I just did this. He already knows. He's, he's wanting you to confess it and agree with it that it's wrong. That's what it is. But this has to do with every part of your being, heart, soul, mind. Living your life completely in his face because he's watching you, the entire man, not just part no compartmentalization. Integrity, this is, this is from a, a Jewish rabbi. I ran across this. Integrity is the concept that most captures the idea of living holy for God, of being a living sacrifice. It points to the core of what it means to be integral, to be wholehearted. It's being honest and truthful in word, action, and thought. It refers to consistency in all areas and at all times. That's worse than perfection, right? It, He's not asking for perfection. He's asking you to live your life as if he's watching in every part of your life, not just part. Again, no compartmentalization, no hidden areas, no this is mine and that is yours. I like this and I know you don't like it, but I'm going to do it anyway. See, Abram was having a problem with that. Blamelessness, excuse me, involves transparency. It requires submission. Submission to what? The will of God. What does he want? Not not what I want. And it demands willing obedience to his commands. Here's what we know about Abram at this point in his life. 
He's 99 years old, and he's still working it out. He's still growing in faith. I'm 67, and I'm still growing in faith. I'm still learning so much about my God and about me. And that's the cool thing about my God is he's patient, and he's still working his plan in my life, and he's not done. And if I live to be 99, he'll still be working in my life because he wants all of me. And it's got to be based on trust. See, Abram was learning to trust God. And God tells him, behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. See, he once again confirms that you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. You will have a son is what he's telling him. And it in Ishmael, you will have a child. He says, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. See, what's cool about this is he goes, you know what? I've just proven what I can do because I'm going to make you a multitude, a multitude of nations from Ishmael. She's ha- had a child. He's 13 and he will be fruitful. So I've proven what I can do, but he's not the answer to the promises. He's not the key. I'm going to do it through a child you've not yet had. And it's going to come through a wife who can't get pregnant. And see, that's still blowing Abram away. That's impossible. There's no way. The promise had only partially been fulfilled through Ishmael. Nations would come from him, but they would never live in the land of Canaan. That, that, they're not the inheritors of the land. It's got to come another way. So look over at Genesis 25. This is the account of the family of Ishmael, the son of Abraham through Hagar. Sarah's Egyptian servant. Here's a list by their names and clans of Ishmael's descendants. Ishmael's descendants occupied the region of Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt in the direction of, of Ashur. There they lived in open hostility towards all their relatives, including who? The Israelites. See, they don't live in the land. It never was for them to live in the land. Yes, they're a great nation. There's a lot of them, but they are not the inheritors of the promise. God's not done yet. God has a plan. So he will be the father of many nations, not just one. And and this is something we never think about. Israel will be a nation. And the word for nation in this passage is goy. Among many nations, goyim. It's the plural and the singular. They will be one nation among many nations. And where did all those nations come from? God. They all came from Noah and his sons, right? Right? Once, once the royal reboot took, took place, God repopulated the world with nations, and one nation was going to stand out, the nation of Israel. No other nation would compete. No other nation could take their place. And so the Gentiles are who the goyim is. Anyone who's not of Israel is the goyim. They're the Gentiles. They're everybody else. The Arabs are Gentiles. The... the um, Philistines are Gentiles. They're all Gentiles. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile because God was going to work through the seed of Abraham. I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations and kings will come from them, but not all of them would share in the covenant. See, that's what he's trying to remind him of. The covenant is only for your offspring. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. Look how many times he says covenant, 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 promise, agreement. And to who? To your offspring, 
to your offspring. I will give to you and to your offspring. Who's he talking about? The offspring he doesn't yet have because his wife is not yet pregnant. But he's saying it's going to happen. You just got to wait. All the land of Canaan will be yours for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant. And this is where it gets really interesting. And I would love to have been there when Abram got this message from God. Because once again, he's getting promises, promises, promises. But now the promise comes with a condition. You got to be wholly committed. Wholly committed. Remember, integral, every part of you. And it's interesting that God ties this sign to this. The covenant is going to have a cost. You talk about wholly committed, what we're going to see is some pretty holy committed or holy commitment. What does he do? He says, your, your offspring are going to bear a mark. And this is where we ought to start kind of getting really squirrely and squirmy. What kind of mark? Well, it's going to be a mark that shows that you're mine. It's going to set you apart. It's going to be different for you than all the other nations. And it's a reminder, a daily reminder that I want all of you. Now, again, you, by now you guys know how my little brain works, but we're talking about circumcision, all right? And I don't need to explain circumcision to you. But here's the reality about circumcision. If you never thought about it, why did God choose circumcision? Why couldn't it have been, you know, a, a, something on my forehead where everybody could see it, that I belong to God? Why was it circumcision that only one person, really only a handful of people ever see the guy who it gets done to, the wife he eventually marries, who will see it occasionally, the mom and dad who had it done to him, and then God Almighty. Nobody else sees circumcision, right? Except maybe your doctor. Why that? Because it's personal. Because it's intimate. And because as a man, you would be reminded that you're circumcised every day in a variety of ways. You would see it. You would be reminded. You would know, I belong to him. This is the mark of my relationship with God. I belong to him and all of me belongs to him. And what's significant about circumcision is that it, it involves what? Your, your ability to procreate to make more of your kind. Not only do I belong to him, but my offspring belong to him. One of the first ones to get circumcised was who? Abram. How old was he? 99. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. At any age, but 99, he got circumcised. As his chosen people, the descendants of Abraham were to walk before him and be blameless. They were to conduct their lives in keeping with their calling and set-apart status, just like Abram. They would belong to God, and as a reminder of their status as his prized possession, God provided them with a sign, a very intimate and extremely painful sign, the rite of circumcision. I don't understand God's ways, guys, but this is his plan. Everybody went under the knife. We know that Abram did, Ishmael did, the slaves did, the servants did, everybody did. That's what it tells us. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. And God said, guess what? Your wife's going to have a child. After 
he just got circumcised. That's a painful reminder, right? That's a lesson. He says, you shall, you shall not call her Sarah anymore. You're going to change your name. You're going to call her Sarah, and I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she shall become nations, and kings of people shall come from her. And then he falls in his face, and he laughs. I don't know how he's laughing after a circumcision, but he laughs. What is he laughing at? This can't happen. This can't be true. Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 99, bear a child? He laughs. Abraham laughs. He laughs at the plan of God. He doesn't believe it. And so he not only gets a change in names, but the plan doesn't change. God is still working on him. His heart is still not there. He still doesn't quite yet believe. They've been working at this for 23 years, and it's not yet happened. But the inconceivable is going to happen. She will bear a child, and it's not going to be Ishmael. He says, no, your wife shall bear a son. You shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. That's what I'm going to do. I will establish my covenant over and over again. And then he leaves. This time next year, it will happen. God puts it on the calendar, but it's going to, guess guess what, take another year of waiting. You've waited a long time, but you're not done waiting. And every time he, quote, knew Sarah, he would be reminded of this promise. The future belongs to God. Why would he be reminded? That circumcision, that physical sign on his body. A year of waiting would come. For the next 12 months, Abram was going to have to wait and see if God would do what he said he would do. And every day, Abram would be faced with the unwavering reality that not only were he and Sarah growing older, but her barrenness remained. That's a task, right? That's a call to be wholly committed all during that time. So here's your questions. God has assured Abram and Sarah that they would have a child, but how were they supposed to believe when all the evidence pointed to more disappointment? A year of waiting and waiting and waiting with nothing happening. What would living your life holy before God look like for you and I today? To do what God calls to do, walk before me and be blameless. Then I want you to read Romans 4, 9 through 12. What does Paul teach us about the sign of circumcision and its relationship to Abram's righteousness? And how does that relate to us today? Well, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the life of Abram. Thank you that it's been put out there for us in all its gory detail. And, and Father, it's, it seems so similar to my life sometimes. But thank you that you were patient with him. You're patient with me, that you're always working You realize that we come up with plans. You allow us to implement those plans. Sometimes they look like they're successful, but in the end, they never work because they're not your plan. But thank you that you are always working your plan to perfection behind the scenes in ways that we can't see. And may we, as Abram did, grow to trust you more and more with each passing day. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.